This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. To keep you in suspense. I had to be every day crying. Night transmissions. Night transmissions. Good evening. Welcome to show 124 of Night Transmissions. This is your lucky day. I can't think of a thing to rattle on about. So we're going to dive right into the radio program. The first one is a program that was produced in Australia by Grace Gibson's production called The Clock, which was a 30-minute series featuring stories of suspense and mystery. The introduction to each show is always the same. Something about sunrise and sunset. Something about promise and fulfillment. Birth and death. You know, all that good stuff. The clock debuted on November the 3rd of 1946 and would run for a bit more than a year, producing during this time 65 shows. The actors and actresses on the show sounded American, which of course marked the program as a natural export for the American market. And it was, running on ABC for its entire Australian run, and then picked up for another 13 weeks with an all-American cast and crew to produce 13 new programs. So there were a total of 78 of these. Tonight's show will remind you of the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, wherein an unpleasant, rich old man, who in a near-death experience, travels in the company of a spirit to find out what people really think of him. It ain't pretty. The show aired on January the 5th of 1947. Sunrise and sunset. Promise and fulfillment. Birth and death. The whole drama of life is written in the sands of time. We present a new series of radio programs, The Clock. Have you ever wished you could live your life all over again? Perhaps you have. Three score and ten is our allotted time, and yet it might be nice to repeat the process and see how many passed under Dobie. No one ever said no to Mr. Dobie. He was much too rich. No one ever crossed him. No one ever matched his will until a late afternoon in January at the age of 52 when our friend Alexander Dobie... But I'm getting ahead of my story. Let me give it to you in more detail. Good afternoon, Mr. Dobie. Good afternoon. I don't remember you're making an appointment. I never make appointments, Dr. Renner, particularly with dentists. Oh. I arrive when I arrive and I leave when I leave. I don't have time to keep appointments. What seems to be the trouble? What do you think would be the trouble when I visit a dentist? I have a toothache. Uh. If my regular dentist hadn't taken a winter vacation, I wouldn't be here now. Dr. Simpson, of course you've heard of him, uh, best man in town, charges $30 a filling. I only charge five. Then you can't be very good. However, 
I have a double purpose in coming here, as you undoubtedly know. I uh, think I can guess. Hmm? You open wide, please. Uh, the big one on the upper left next to the... Oh, oh I'm sorry. Well, what, what are you trying to do? Torture me? Well, you've got quite a cavity there. You needn't tell me it's my tooth, isn't it? Will you uh, have to drill? Well, naturally. Will it hurt? Probably. Well, I don't want it to hurt. Blast it. I haven't got time to be in pain. Would you like some gas? Gas? Well, you won't feel a thing if I give you gas. I hope not. Rena, how long have you known my daughter? Oh, it's been almost a year, Mr. Doby. That's almost a year too long, young man. Just what are your intentions? Hasn't Arlene told you? She doesn't have to tell me. I know what's going on. Well, Mr. Doby, as long as you bring the matter up... Well? Well, I, I want to marry Arlene. You want to what? Well, I... I had every intention of coming to see you very soon. What is your income, Renner? Five thousand a year. That's gross, isn't it? Yes. And after your overhead is cleared, your office, instruments, and so on, what's left? Well, about... About three thousand, I guess. Three thousand a year. Sixty dollars a week, and you want to marry my daughter. Well, Mr. Doby, I... Oh, I... I know what you're after, my enterprising young fellow. Don't think you're getting ahead of me. I'm not quite sure I know what you mean, Mr. Doby. Heiresses aren't easy to come by, are they? Particularly for inconsequential pipsqueaks like you. Mr. Doby, you're going a little too far. Please, let's not quarrel. You're Arlene's father and I... You can bet your last bicuspid I'm her father. But I'm never be going to be your father-in-law. Now, do you hear that? From now on, your little romance is finished. I don't want you to see my daughter again. Is that clear? Very. I can make a lot of trouble for you, Renner. So keep it in mind. I will, Mr. Doby. Well, now get on with that, too. And if I so much as feel one twinge of pain, I'll bite a hole in your hand. What's that? I'm ready to give you the gas now. Well, don't stand there like an idiot. Give it to me. Well, we'll just put this mask over your face. Now, breathe naturally. Well, how else do you think I can breathe? This will only take a minute. Be careful with that fool thing now. Don't give me too much. I know my business, Mr. Dolby. I'm going to give you just enough. Is this stuff... Dangerous? It could be, if it's not handled properly. So, you're coming between Arlene and me. You bet your boots I am. And I'll ruin you, Renner, if you so much as... as... Say, say, wait a minute. I... I... I feel peculiar. Breathe deeply, Mr. Doby. Get this thing off me. I... I don't want any gas. Just a few seconds more. Oh! No, I don't want any more... You're trying to kill me! Take that mask away! Take it away, you hear? You're killing me! You're killing me! Say something, Mr. Doby. Who it places to you? My name is Ipswich. That's not a name, that's a railroad station. 
Where am I? In a room. Oh, I know I'm in a room. You... That dentist, Renner. Now I remember. He tried to kill me. Did he? Gave me gas. Get hold of the police. I'm having that man jailed immediately. Now, let me see. I believe I have a list of your vital statistics here. Did you hear what I said about the police? I suggest you relax, Mr. Dobie. It'll make it so much easier for both of us. See, where am I? In a lunatic asylum? What am I doing in a bare room? How did I get here? My tooth doesn't hurt. Alexander Dobie, aged 52... Widower, one child, place of birth, Rochester, New York. Member of the Stock Exchange, president of the Universal Copper Company, Incorporated. How do you know so much about me? It's my business to know everything about everyone, Mr. Derby. Listen, you crackpot. I just told you a man tried to murder me. Now, are you going to call the police or must police? I... Police? There are no police, Mr. Derby. What? And I know all about Dr. Renner and you. Too much guess. It's happened before, still it's more pleasant than falling out of the window, isn't it? You must admit you left the world with ease and comfort. Left the world? You... You talk as if I'm dead. But you are, Mr. Derby. You are dead. I... I just can't believe it. It isn't possible. It's happened before, Mr. Derby. You're not the first man to arrive at the middle level. There have been several billion before you. Middle level? What middle level? Why haven't I been taken to the upper level? Well, first, there are references to be checked, Mr. Derby. Of course, the references aren't so important on the lower level. So you needn't worry. We'll see you get in somewhere. I've got hundreds of references, Ipswich. Really? Odd they're not listed here. Apparently, you don't know who I am. Yes, you're Alexander Derby, aged 52. I also happen to be Alexander Derby, the richest man in the East. I'm on the board of directors in three banks... I'm a member of five of the most exclusive clubs in America, and it would take you a week to walk across my real estate if it was laid end to end. I still don't see any references on my list. Turn your list as a forgery, Ipswich. Ask any businessman in New York who I am. He'll tell you without blinking an eyelash. I'm afraid you misunderstand me, Mr. Derby. I'm talking about personal references now. Personal references? Yes, in order to reach the upper level, someone must vouch for you. A friend or a member of your family, just one kind word in your favor is all that's needed, Mr. Derby. Oh, now, look here, Ipswich. Uh, let's not be silly about this. Uh, I'm not in the habit of asking people to vouch for me. Uh, here. What's that? Money, you fool. The hundred-dollar bill. Now take it and let's get started. Dear, dear, they're getting awfully careless at the main gate. You're the third person who's come through here in the past 80 years with money. What do you mean? Money isn't needed in this area, so to speak. Money's needed everywhere. Makes the world go round. But you happen to be out of this world, Mr. Derby. Now, about that reference. Oh, are we going into that again? I'm afraid it's necessary. All right, if you insist. I can give you a reference. Fine. Uh, how do we get back? Just tell me where you want to go, Mr. Derby. Who'll give you this reference? My banker, of course. Who else? Very well, sir. We'll see your banker. This is where you bank your money, I believe. And uh, there's John Harvey, the president. Uh, John! He can't hear you, Mr. Derby. He can't? He can't see you either. Well, 
that's a ridiculous position to be in. But we can hear and see him. Let's go over to his desk. Mr. Harvey. What is it, Lewis? Here's that statement Mr. Doby's executor asked for. Oh, yes, yes, his asset. Mm-hmm. Wait till you hear this, Mr. Fitch. Yes, I imagine it's very impressive. He certainly was rich, wasn't he? Extremely. He had $11 million in cash in this bank alone. To say nothing of his mortgages and real estate. Yes, it's quite a fortune. Alexander Doby was even richer than I imagined. There you are, Ipswich. How's that for reference? It's still not personal. Hard to please, aren't you? Mr. Harvey, how long do you think it took him to amass a fortune like that? It wasn't done overnight. I'll say it wasn't. He must have worked hard for it. There's your reference, Ipswich. Oh, don't be silly, Lewis. He just cheated a little better than the next chap, that's all. In order to build this fortune, he probably ruined half a dozen men. I know what Doby's kind was like. Last of the robber barons. He, he doesn't know what, what he's talking about. He doesn't he? I hate to say this about a man who's gone, Lewis, but Alex Dobie's death was no loss to the world. I doubt if anyone will miss him. There are many people who've already forgotten he ever existed. Shall I send this report to his attorneys, Mr. Harvey? Yes, get it over with. I'm going out for lunch and around the golf. Well, Mr. Dobie? That's a fine way for a man to treat a client. That's all I have to say. He'll never get another nickel of my business. I'm sure he won't. Anyway, he was always jealous of me. And he was never a very good friend. Then suppose we visit a good friend, Mr. Derby. Uh, yes. Well, all right. Who shall we see? Oh, anyone at all. It doesn't matter. I've lots of friends. And good friends, too. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, let's see now, good friend. Mm, uh, this will be time. Ipswich. Uh, I'll think of one. Uh, uh, Ipswich. Yes, Mr. Derby? Uh, not that I... Uh, Back to disappoint you, and, and just for the sake of argument, out of sheer curiosity, what would happen if I didn't produce a reference? I wouldn't talk about that now, Mr. Derby. I demand to know. It isn't a pleasant subject. What are you getting at? Mr. Derby, we haven't too much time, so let's get on with it. Have you or have you not a personal reference to offer? I certainly have. I hope... this earth, time is measured in seconds, minutes, and hours. In Mr. Doby's new world, time is calculated in eternities. Days, months, and years are unimportant. There is only now and later. And in Mr. Doby's case, it was later than he thought. Hey, isn't that my country club with Twitch? You said you wanted to hear from Charlie Parker, I believe. Well, we'll find him on the golf course. <laughs> Good old Charlie. He spent ten years trying to beat me at golf. But he could never touch my game. Were you that good? Good. I was number two man at the club. Oh, there's Charlie now, walking towards the first tee. Let's join him. Hey, wait a minute. He's playing a twosome with John Harvey. Now, listen, we, we, we just saw Harvey, and what he says doesn't count. I'm only interested in what Mr. Parker has to say. Hello there, Charlie. Oh, afternoon, John. You're late. Sorry, I was going over Alex Dorby's account. Oh, uh, yeah, Alex died the other day, I hear. He was a very good personal friend of yours, wasn't he? Oh, I knew him quite well. Go on, Charlie. 
Tell him how we got along. Tell him what a wonderful chap I was. He used to play quite a bit of golf with Alex. Oh, was he good? Uh, number two man at the club. What did I tell you, Ipswich? Should have been number one man, the way he kept his score. Oh, really? If he took ten strokes, he'd put down five. It was just about the biggest golf liar I ever met. Now, look here, you old windbag. I told you they can't hear you, Mr. Dillon. So he cheated in golf as well as in everything else. Yeah, yeah. not only that, but he did it for money. No money? I can forgive a man who forgets a stroke or two on his scorecard. Oh. After all, we're, we're only human. It's oh. nice to feel you're... Well, it... Uh... Kid yourself that you're an athlete at the age of 50 or so. Oh, I know what you mean, Charlie. But uh, Doby always insisted on playing for money. Five dollars a hole. and He always made sure to win every hole in the bargain. With his pencil, eh? <laughs> it was really disgusting, Harvey. He was richer than any man I'd ever known. Yet he, he'd cheat for a five dollar bill. Can you imagine that? No, I guess not. But as I understood it, Parky, you were his closest friend. You don't seem to be very unhappy about his passing. His closest friend. Yeah, I was his closest friend. I knew what was good for me. He held 51% of the stock in my company. He could have ruined me at the drop of a hat. That's why I made sure to be his closest friend. Oh, I see. But, uh, personally. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? You know how I'm going to mourn his death? No. By getting tight in the clubhouse after this round of golf. <laughs> and it's going to be more of a celebration than anything else. <laughs> Come on, let's go. Well, well, that's that. I... I would never have believed it, a Charlie. Never. Did you cheat at golf, Mr. Doby? Cheat? As Parker claimed. Well, I, uh, I admit taking a stroke or two off my card here and there, but... Uh... What difference did it make? It was all in fun. Fun? Five dollars a hole. Now listen to me, Ipswich. Mr. Doby, I'm afraid I'll have to inform the secretary. What? You don't seem to be able to provide a reference. Now look, Ipswich, you've you got to give me a break. A break? I'm due for the upper level, and you know it. And by George, you're going to take me there. I'm sorry, Mr. Doby. Now, now, wait a minute, Ipswich. I'm a rich man, a very rich man. All that talk about not using money was just plain silly. You know it was. Oh, I admit I underestimated you by offering you a hundred dollars, but but I, I'll raise that offer. Will you? To, to a million. Hmm. Well, how's that, eh? A million dollars in cash. And you don't have to report it to the government if you don't want to. I'll, I'll keep quiet myself. Save the tax, see what I mean? Only a reference and a good one will do the trick, Mr. Derby. I won't go any higher, Ipswich. Either you take two million or the deal's off. Fine. The deal is off. Wait, wait. Don't leave me a twitch. Maybe I uh, made a mistake. Maybe you're the one man who doesn't have his price, but uh, don't leave me alone. I'm uh, I'm a little frightened. The great Alexander Doby. Frightened. Well, I, uh, I've never been in a position before where my money was useless. I'm not used to that sort of thing. Blasted. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. That's a concession for you. Look, Ipswich, I mean, uh, Mr. Ipswich, uh, uh, maybe you can help me out. I? Well, you've known me for now, uh, well, uh, well, for uh, quite a while. Couldn't you give me a reference? Sorry, employees and their families are excluded from taking part. Oh. I might make one suggestion, however. Yes? Your daughter. My daughter? Surely if there's one person in the world you've left who's sorry, it must be she. I... I never thought of Arlene. It seems to be your last chance, Mr. Derby. All right, Mr. Ipswich. We'll see how Arlene feels about it. 
poor Mr. Delby. Fancy a million dollars, not enough to buy what he wants. Let's hear how he gets on with Arlene. This is my home, Mr. Ipswich. Hmm. Rather ornate, isn't it? Well, why, why, this house cost a quarter of a million dollars. Marbles imported from Italy, and, uh, well, uh, it was very expensive. Uh, let's hear what your daughter has to say. That young man who's with her, we saw him a little while ago. Uh, that's Lewis, the bank accountant. I'm sorry to disturb you at a time like this, Mrs. Adobe. That's quite all right, Mr. Lewis. I've brought a copy of a statement I gave the executor of your father's estate. I thought you might want to keep it in your files. Thank you. We were all deeply shocked at the bank, Miss Dobie. Your father's death was so sudden. I I want you to know that you have all our sympathy. Thank you. But you needn't put yourself out too much, Mr. Lewis. I understand. I beg your pardon? No one really misses father. No one cares that he's gone. But surely... He didn't have a friend in the world, and you know it. Arlene. To be perfectly frank with you, I'm finding it hard to care myself. I know it's a terrible thing for a daughter to say, but... Well, I can't be a hypocrite. My father gave me everything that money could buy. Everything but happiness. I'm sorry. He ruled my life like... like a dictator. I could never make a move without his knowledge. I could hardly even breathe unless he said it was all right. And before he died, he even separated me from the man I loved, Fred Renner. Fred's never come to see me, and... Well, I don't think he ever will again. My father and I had nothing in common. No matter how hard I try, I, I can be sorry. Well, Mr. Doobie? All right, Mr. Ipswich. I, I guess we can call it a day. I'm ready. Just a moment. What? Someone else is standing over there. He seems to have heard what your daughter just told Lewis. It, it's Renner, that dentist. How can he have the nerve to come here, that murdering nincompoop? How could he have the crust? Why, he hated me so much he tried to kill me. In fact, by George, he did kill me. Arlene, I, I couldn't come any sooner. Just as long as you did come, Fred, it's all right. For a while, I I thought I could never come at all after what happened. It was an accident. Oh, you do believe that, don't you? Well, of course. The gas output was defective. I tried to bring him around, but defective. I... Defective? I like that. Arlene, I, I heard what you told Mr. Lewis just a few moments ago. Well, I couldn't help it. That's how I feel. But you mustn't feel that way. What? What did he say? No matter what your father was like, Arlene, he loved you. It's the one thing in his life he was sincere about. You, you must believe it. You can say that after the way he treated you, Fred. Oh, I can forgive him for it. And go one step further. Arlene, I'm, I'm sorry he's gone. I, I really am. He wasn't a very pleasant man, perhaps, because no one understood him. But underneath, I... I don't know. I feel he was decent, in spite of everything. Is... is that Rainer talking? Looks like you've got your reference at last, Mr. Derby. I can't believe it. Rainer. Well, <laughs> say, that, that's mighty nice of him. It's certainly something I never expected. Wait. It'll be my way. I thought you said he couldn't see me. It's my friend, Blaze's ego. He's going to kill me all over again. You can't kill me, you fool. I'm dead already. 
Mr. Dolby, wake up. Mr. Dolby. He's coming around. He's in out. What happened? Who are you? Officer Callahan. Police emergency squad. That respirator just saved your life, Mr. Dolby. Dr. Rennie gave you a little too much gas. Boy, it was an accident, I tell you. My, my meter wasn't working. That's something you may have to prove, Doc. What, what do you mean? You're coming down to headquarters with me. Maybe this wasn't deliberate, but... Uh, Criminal negligence can be another story. Criminal negligence? Just a moment, officer. Who do you think you're talking to? What? You know who I am. Sure, you're Mr. Dobie. Then get on about your business and leave us alone. How dare you accuse my prospective son-in-law of criminal negligence? Well, I'm uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Dobie. I I didn't mean to... Go on back to your precinct and no report of this to anyone. You hear? Yes, sir. Sorry, Dr. Renner. But uh, it's quite all right. Mr. Dobie... Well? Did you did you really mean that about, about my being your prospective son-in-law? I always mean everything I say, young man. Well, let me thank you for the way you, you acted with that cop. I mean, well, it was honestly an accident, but, well, you could have made an awful lot of trouble for me. I think nothing of it, Freddy. Matter of fact, you uh, might return the favor one day. Return the favor? How? Well, <laughs> you never know, Renan. When I may need a reference. Well, there you are. Alexander Doby seems to have gotten his second chance, and I have a feeling he'll do a better job with this one. Yes, at one time or another, we all need references, and it's always a good idea to keep it in mind. And if you ever want my help, don't hesitate to call. I'll be glad to provide a fitting testimonial for any of my friends. And everyone knows my reference is a good one. For after all, the time is always right. The clock will be heard again next week, same time, same station. Lawrence Clee writes it, and Hart McGuire narrates as Alexander Doby and Mr. Ipswich, you heard Tom Farley and Ken Hannum. Others in the cast were Howard Craven, Frank Waters, and June Salter. The Clock is a Grace Gibson Radio production directed by John Saul. Another five-minute mystery. Inspector Clark speaking. Yes? The Cooper Rubies? Where? Blackstone's at 49th. I'll be right over. Oh, come in, Inspector. Oh, this is terrible, terrible. And to think that we took such precautions. I just can't understand it. Now, now, just a moment, Mr. Blackstone. Just calm down a bit and tell me what's happened. I'll tell you what's happened. 
one of the Cooper rubies has been stolen. That's what's happened. I understand that, Mr. Blackstone. But if I could have some information about them... Uh, the Cooper rubies are a group of 15 of the most exquisite stones I have ever had in my possession. Uh, this woman, Mrs. Lloyd, came into my shop and asked to see the Cooper rubies. I wanted to buy one, but I certainly don't now. I was showing them to her myself. At the same time, I was showing this gentleman, uh, Mr. Williams, some bracelets. Just a simple little bracelet for my wife, Inspector. I was interrupted by one of the sales girls. I turned away for just a moment, and when I looked back, one of the rubies was gone. Now I ask you, who other than one of these two could have taken it? Your assumption is quite sound, Mr. Blackstone. I'm very much afraid I'm going to have to ask you two to be searched. Leave your bag here on the desk. Mr. Blackstone's secretary will assist you in the other room. Mr. Williams, I'll search you in Mr. Blackstone's office. Now, let's see. Mrs. Lloyd's bag. Compact. Nothing here. Lipstick. No secret compartments. I hope you're satisfied. Gloves. Nothing in the pockets. Well, I guess that eliminates you, Mrs. Lloyd. (laughs) Now, Mr. Williams' things. Nothing in the pockets. Billfold. Comb. Does that eliminate me, Inspector? I guess it does, Mr. Williams. Everything seems to be quite in order. Uh, cigarette, Mrs. Lloyd? No, thank you. I don't smoke. Williams? No, thanks. I have my pipe. Oh, of course. Well, Mr. Blackstone, I've found your precious ruby. You've what? Uh, But I haven't seen it. No, you haven't seen it, Mr. Blackstone, but I know where it is. Mr. Williams, I arrest you for the theft of the Cooper ruby. How did the inspector discover Eric Williams' theft of the Cooper rubies? Do you know the clue? In a moment, we'll hear more. But first... I know, I know. Another break. What can I do to promise to come back soon? what Inspector Clark has to say. But I don't understand. Where is the ruby, Inspector? Well, Mr. Blackstone, when I asked these two people to submit to be searched, I knew the guilty one would hold out. For a moment, I thought I was licked. We seemed to have all their possessions, yet nothing was evident. Only when I offered Mr. Williams a cigarette did I notice that he was smoking a pipe. Here, Mr. Blackstone, is your ruby, concealed in the bowl of this pipe. And now, Mr. Williams, I'd like to show you something in bracelets. A double one, better known as the handcuff. Next up is an episode of Tales from the Morgue. Alma versus the Mutant Rats. Dead Chatter's Tales from the Morgue is a series of short stories told by an obliging morgue attendant. And, by the way, a licensed embalmer, so you know he was a renaissance man, which makes him well-suited to tell the stories, to act as the narrator for this series. As you might expect, being that he works in a morgue, his stories are all a bit odd. They deal with topics that would be classified as supernatural or science fiction. Sometimes they border on the outrageous, 
But that's the aim of the series. Roughly half of the episodes feature a likable rural southern manure holler by the name of Elmer Corn, who always manages to find himself in some stupid predicament or another. So sit back and listen to Elmer vs. the Mole Rats. From December the 22nd of 1986. M&J Audio Theater presents Chet Cheddar's Tales from the Moor. Come right in. Do have a seat, won't you? There. You are comfortable, I trust? Well, good. I am Chet Chatter, the morgue attendant here. I'm so glad you dropped in. I have quite a story to tell you today. It is about a man from Biloxi named Elmer Corn. Yeah, I have quite a few stories about this man. Yeah. Now, let's see. It was late February on a Tuesday, and Mr. Corden was enjoying a week's vacation from his work of manure hauling. If I remember correctly, it was around 11.30 a.m., and Mr. Corden was sleeping in late. A rare privilege for a man who usually awakens at 5.30. Oh, bad gummit. Okay, I'm awake. Okay, keep keep your britches on. I'm coming. Uh, uh, Hello? Oh, howdy, Miss Maddie. How's your lower back? Oh, what, what's wrong? You, you out of toilet paper again? Oh, wow. Rats the size of small cats, you say? Well, now, Miss Maddox, you ain't been fooling around in them mushrooms in your backyard, have you? Oh, okay. Now, okay, now, now you just settle down. Okay, I'll be right. I'll be right over, Miss Maddox. Miss Maddox, Miss Miss Maddox. Dad, gum. I better hurry. Come on, Let's start now. Come on now. Get going, you honorary devil. Come on. Here, Miss Maddox. Uh, uh, Miss Maddox, you okay? Look at him, Elmer. Look at him. Angel Look at him, Mercy. Oh, they're all over the place. They're eating the furniture, Elmer. Uh, yeah. Oh, save me. Save me, Elmer. Lord, I, save me. I'm sorry I ever doubted you, Miss Maddox. Don't be sorry. Just save 30 me, Elmer. Thirty or forty of them things. Oh. oh. Big, too. Oh. oh Look at that one right there. That's the size of a chihuahua or something. Oh, Elmer. 
Lord. When I was talking to you over the phone, they just ate the legs out from underneath uh-huh. the chair. They just ate it all, and I'm standing on this table now. Huh. Oh, Elmer, they ate it. heard of a rat doing something like that. Uh, oh, well, will you just stay uh, up on that countertop, Miss Maddox? They can't get to you yeah, there. Yes, I'll make sure of it. Okay, Elmer. Okay. Boy, uh, look at him. Oh, that wart oh, that boils all over him. Oh, oh, look at the claws on him. The claws, Elmer. Like the mold. claws. The claws. My furniture. Say, listen, Miss Maddox. Did you try sick and fluffy on him? No, I didn't try that. Yes, him. He's in the other room. In the other oh, room, okay. Elmer. All Come right. Get him. Call him or something, Elmer. Here, Fluffy. Oh. Here, Fluffy, old boy. Right. Fluffy, Fluffy. Come here, Fluffy. Fluffy, sick the rat. I, sick the rats, wait, Fluffy. Wait. Sick them. I, I, I think he sees the rats, Miss Maddie. Oh, good. Atta boy, Fluffy. You get them rats. There you go. There you go. Hey. And a boy, Fluffy, tear them rats from limb to limb. Yeah. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Jiminy. Them rats pitched that cat through a window. Oh, Elmer. Oh, I, I, I'm awful sorry, Miss Maddie. Fluffy was a cute little kitty, too. It's a ticket to go that way. I'm, I'm going to get even for that, though. You just watch me. Oh, good, you got a hunk of cheese in the ice box? Yeah, Elmer. Help yourself. Well, good. I got a can full of gasoline in the back of my truck. Okay. All right. Come on, now. Y'all want this hunk of cheese? <laughs> well, y'all going to have to come outside to get it. You disease-carrying little dirt bag. You said it, Elmer. All right. Here you go. Chow down. Wow. I'll tell you something, Miss Maddox. Them yeah. there are some versatile rats that can throw a cat through a window. They sure Let's are. Let's just see how versatile they are when the heat pours on them. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Let's sell some of this gasoline. Gasoline. Okay, Miss Maddox, stand back uh, now. Yes, sir. I'm fixing to torch this vermin. This here's for Fluffy. You ugly little devil. Wonderful, Elmer. Wonderful. I barbecued them, Miss Maddox. They won't be bugging you no more. That's terrific, Elmer. No more rats. Well, I'm well, I glad to do it. I'm just sorry about Fluffy. Oh, darn it. Don't mention it. Goodness. Well, I, I tell you what, Miss Maddox. We'll have a memorial service late this season, okay? Oh, Elmer, that'd be great. Just dandy. Whoa! Oh! What was that? Ferris. This house down the road, it it just blowed up. It sure did, Elmer. I'll I'll see you in a little while, Miss Maddox. I gotta go check this out. All right, Sonny. Well, now, things are certainly happening quickly, aren't they? One thing's for sure, this is certainly no boring vacation for Mr. Cord. Cecil! Cecil, what in the world happened? You okay? Yeah, Elmer, my house just blew up. I know, I, I saw it from Miss Maddox's house. Good Lord, what in the world happened, Cecil? I don't know. I was just out repairing my motorcycle. Pardon me, fellas. And all of a sudden, boom. Good Lord, Pardon it was me. an explosion like I'd never seen. Pardon me, I'm Lester Taylor. I'm the fire chief. Howdy. I've just been inspecting underneath your house here, and yeah. I found this severed gas line. Wow. Yeah, just look at that, baby. Whoa, whoa. Huh. 
Looks like it's been chewed in too. Sure yeah. does. But then again, that's pretty impossible. Yeah. Well, Mr. Uh, Ferris, we're going to salvage what we can. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Bye-bye. That's a, that's a tough break, Cecil. I, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to tell you. Well, I need to call my insurance man, Elmer. Will you take me to your house? Oh, sure thing, Cecil. Sure thing. Side all right. It, it's a terrible thing to witness, your house burning down and everything. And we can just get you away from all this. Come on over. Thank you, Elmer. All right. Here we are, Cecil. Yeah. You're welcome to stay here as long as you need to. I'm going to go in the front yard and get the paper, all right? Just just hold on a sec. I'll be using your phone, Elmer. Uh, okay. Well, let's see here. Oh, that paper's way out there. Boy, that paper boy's got a pitching on. Okay. Well, I wonder if there's going to be any good news to read today. Here's the old alley oops up. What the? Hey! The ground's shaking it. What the hell? Hey! The ground's swallowing me up! Ah! Good Lord! Cecil! Help me up! God! I'm slipping! I'm slipping in the earth! Good Lord! I'm falling! Ah! Ah! Gum! What did I fall into? Huh, looks like a, looks like a tunnel. I mean, the ground just opened up from under my feet and I just, uh, I say, say, say so! Yeah! Say so, come here! What are you doing in that hole, Elmer? Huh? Oh, not much, just contemplating the universe. How'd you get down there, Elmer? I don't know, the ground just opened up and I fell into this thing. Reach in the back of my truck and get a, get a rope, okay? okay. In my toolbox. I'll get it. Throw it down here. All Huh, sounds like this tunnel goes far. Don't see much. Light don't reach very far. Uh-oh. Oh my good lord. Rats. Sounds like thousands of them. Oh, so, so, see so! Yeah, what? Hurry up with that rope! I'm getting hold your horses, Elmo! There's rats coming after me, Cecil! All right! Thousands! Elmo, say look! Uh, uh, hurry up! Here it comes, Elmo! Okay! All right, I got it. All right, I'm tying it around my waist. Oh, my God. All right, hurry, Cecil. Pull me up. Too heavy, Elmer. I can't pull you What do you mean you can't, Cecil? I'm too weak. I I just got stuck. Why, you malnourished Put some muscle into it. Oh, get off my leg, you filth. Get off. They're eating me alive, Cecil. Tied to the back of my trailer hitch, you fool. Pull me out of this thing! Let's get the truck! Hurry! I'll do it, Elf! Hold the horse! Get off! 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 Get Hey, thank you, Cecil. You saved my life, boy. Yeah? There was a sea of rats down there. Wow. Just a sea of them. Uh-huh. Big ones, too. Biggest dogs, I swear. Yeah. I, I, I'm real sorry about calling you a malnourished idiot and all that. 
I thought I was about to become rodent fodder. You understand? Well, listen, Elmer, we're pals, all right? Well, thank you. We're just friends. Look, I'm going to go inside and call Bernie Edwards. He runs a gasoline truck. Maybe he can help us out. Well, well, Elmer, what are you going to do? Just never you mind, Cecil. I know what I'm doing. Watch Uh, that hole there and make sure none of them gigantic rats crawl out. Okay. Elmer raced to the phone and explained the rat problem to his friend. Soon, a convoy of ten tanker trucks arrived and began pumping great amounts of gasoline into the rat-filled tunnels. Well, how's it going, Bernie? You fellas almost finished? We're on the last tank now, Elmer. Good. Say, Elmer, you know it took a lot of tanks to fill up them there tunnels. Yeah. They must be all under Bloxy. They are, they are. One of them goes under Miss Maddox's house, and one went under Cecil Ferris's house. One of them chewed one of his gas lines into. Well, but Dad Gum, say, see, Elmer, how are we going to pay for all this? This ain't no time to talk about financial difficulties there, Bernie. We'll pay for that gasoline somehow, even if we have to take up a collection. I promise you. But right now, I think it's time to torch them rats. All right, fellas. I think that's enough gasoline. Let's put the fire to them. The men used torches to ignite the river of gasoline flowing throughout the tunnel. Instantly, the sound of screeching rats filled the air. The stench of burning flesh was everywhere. The fire burned for ten hours before it gradually died down. Y'all did a real good job, fellas. Thank you, Elmer. I think Vickers eat most of them ugly critters. Yeah. I think them rats were out for flesh, so I I bet you saved a lot of lives. Well, well, thank you. Glad to do it, Elmer. Glad to do it. Well, y'all did an excellent job. When the fire cools down, we'll go down in them tunnels and kill what's left of guns. What do you say? Okay. We'll do it. Elmer. Elmer, there's a Cadillac pulling up in your driveway. Oh, that's a shiny thing, ain't it? Huh, Elmer. Elmer. Yeah, that's a brand new Cadillac. Well, dead gum. Dead gum. It's one of them big city folk. Well, don't like, don't act like you never seen one before, Cecil. Straighten up. Don't act like a hit. He's got a tie and everything. Shh. Oh, oh, okay. All right. All right. I'll do the talk. All right. All right. Excuse me. My name is Dr. Van Zimmer. I'm from Plemco Laboratories. Well, uh, well, pleased to meet you, Mr. Van Zimmer. I'm Elmer Corn. This here's my friend Cecil Ferris. Heidi. Well, well, sorry we smell like gasoline. We hadn't had time to wash up yet. Oh, uh, quite all right. Uh, we understand that you've been having a rat problem here. Well, uh, well, we did, sir. And that was an understatement. We was knee-deep in the ugly things. But but I think we got them under control. Oh, good. That is excellent. You see, Mr. Corn, unfortunately, Plimco is responsible for the rodents. Oh, yeah? How? We at Plimco test the effects of various chemicals in laboratory rats. Oh. For instance, cosmetics, bathroom cleansers, etc. Yeah. And then for a fee, we send the lab results to various corporations. Well, uh, what's that got to do with our rat problem? You see, Plimco purchased a few acres of land here in Biloxi about five years ago. Oh. We've been using this land to bury dead laboratory rodents. Oh, yeah. I guess that was Bernie Edwards' place, wasn't it? He sold that place to, to pay off a loan he took out on his farm. That is correct. We believe that over the years, a few rats were buried alive by mistake. 
Oh. We've studied the specimens, and we think the surviving rats mated with moles. Mated with moles? Yes, moles are rodent-like creatures that dig under the ground. Uh, y- yes, sir, I-, I know what moles are. I ain't as stupid as I look. But, uh, I mean, you're trying to tell me them things were mole rats? It's worse than that, I am afraid. The chemicals we used on them have mutated their growth glands. Oh. So what you have here are basically giant mutant mole rats. Jiminy. Giant, you say? Yes, that is correct. Uh, j- just how big do they get? Well, that is hard to say. We have studied one specimen that weighs over 250 pounds. Great gobs of mercy, he said. Well, listen, Mr. Van Zimmer, I-, I think we killed off most of them. Oh, and we are very, very grateful, Mr. Korn. You have saved Plimco from a lot of paperwork. Oh, and the lab will pay for all damages and expenses, too. Oh, that's a relief, Mr. Van Zimmer. Say, did you hear that, Bernie? Yeah. The gasoline's paid for. All right, Elmer. And it looks like you're going to get a new house, Cecil. Well, I'll be dead gone. Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Van Zimmer, it takes a big man to admit he's made a mistake. And it takes a very big company to pay for the mistake, too. Uh, Good heavens. Uh-oh. What oh, is this? Goodness, not another trimmer. Does this trimmer thing happen often? Well, well, the last time this happened, Mr. Van Zimmer, I fell through a hole in the ground. Elmer! Elmer, look over huh? there! Look! What is it, Cecil? Look at it, Elmer, look! Huh? Holy moly, he exclaimed. Whoa. Look at the size of that thing crawling out of the ground. Hey, that is a big rat. Big as a double-wide trailer. Elmer, what are we gonna do? Uh, I, I, I don't know, Cecil. I'm busy peeing on myself at the moment. Oh. Say, say, Cecil. Yeah. Run to the back of my house. There's a junk pile back there. Get me a piece of thin pipe about an inch and a half in diameter. Hurry. Inch and a half. Inch and a half in diameter. Be right say, back. Say, say, Bernie. You, you got any gasoline left in one of them trucks? We got about half a tank left. Oh, good. Here you go, thank, Elmer. Thank you, Cecil. Thank you. What are you going to do, Mr. Corn? Well, Mr. Van Zimmer, I figure if I can attach this yeah. piece of pipe to the end of this gas line, uh-huh. and I could jab it into the side of that rat, we could pump that sucker full of gasoline, oh. like intravenously. I see. Yes, I think I see what you mean. Then a spark or something... We can blow that sucker up. Oh, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm playing this whole thing by ear, you understand. Well, it sounds like a very good idea, Mr. Corn. But you. how are you going to pierce the side of the rat without it eating well, you first? Well, it, it's kind of dangerous, Mr. Van Zimmer, but if, if someone could distract the rat, I could sneak up on it and, and shove this thing into the side of it. Don't look at me, Elmer! Well, somebody's got to distract it. Mr. Corn. I am partially responsible well, for I, this. I would distract the rat. Well, that that's very admirable and brave, Mr. Van Zimmer, but uh, you're going to have to yes. be careful. You're going to have to keep a good distance away from that thing. Stick your tongue at it, scream at it, yes. get it interested in you, and I'll run up on it as quick as I can and jab that thing into it. All right, all right. Well, are you ready? I'm ready if you are. All right, let's go, let's go. All right. Yeah. Over here, right? Good. Hey. Good, Mr. Van Zimmer. Good. The rat sees you. Keep it up. Cecil. Cecil, go into my bedroom closet. I've got some bottle rockets from last New Year's. Bring them here, okay? Okay. All right. 
Okay, Mr. Van Zimmer, keep distracting him. I'm fixing to shut this pipe into him. All right, you foul-smelling rodent. Take this. Mr. Van Zimmer, I got the pop into him. Run! Run like hell! Get out of the way! Wait a minute! Look oh. out, Mr. Van Zimmer's behind you! Oh, oh no! Oh. Let go of that man! Let go of him, you creature! Oh! Oh, no! It's eating him! Oh, the inhumanity of it! Let's don't waste no more time, fellas! Bernie, start pumping gas into that thing. The fuel truck began pumping 250 gallons of gasoline into the mutant rat as it dined on the remains of Mr. Van Zimmer. When the truck was exhausted of its fuel, the pumps were shut down, and the bloated rodent began crawling sluggishly towards them. Mr. Corn carefully aimed a bottle rocket at the mouth of the creature and lit the fuse. All right, everybody stand back. This thing is fixing a launch. Be sure. Aim's at the mouth, Elmer. Good idea, Cecil. All right, everybody duck. This is liable to be a big bang. Gross, Amber. Disgusting. Gross. Yeah, let's take cover, boys. Oh. Everybody in my house. Okay. Later, in the backyard of Miss Maddox's house, a touching memorial was taking place. We're all gathered here today to pay our final respects to our dearly departed Fluffy the Cat. He was a fine cat, Elmer, just a fine yes, one. he certainly was, Miss Maddox. A dear kitty, fluffy, white, and cute as a bug. He'd come up against you and rub and go to sleep in your lap and purr. I'll always remember Fluffy, and I know if there's a heaven for cats, well, he's up there and he's chasing rats, and, and this time I'll bet he's winning. And I think while we're at it, we should also mention Dr. Van Zimmer, that fella from that laboratory that, that helped save Biloxi from a giant rat. He gave his life. I don't know. I, I didn't know either one of them very well, Fluffy or Dr. Van Zimmer, but I know one thing. I'm never going to forget him. Never. That was real touching, Elmer. Real touching. That was touching, was it to her? Uh, and now they're rid of their rat problem. If only I could say the same for this creepy place. The morgue is just filled with the little beasts. Uh, fortunately, I've set traps. Oh, there goes one now. It looks like I'll have dessert tonight. <laughs> Oh, oh, that was a disgusting joke. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, please don't leave now. Uh, I didn't mean to offend you. Uh, well, if you must go, uh, do return, though, won't you? Uh, until then, pleasant 
You have just heard Chet Cheddar's Tales from the Morgue. Today's installment, Elmer versus the Mutant Mole Rats. The names and characters portrayed in this production are fictitious. Any similarities to actual persons, that includes Mutant Mole Rats, is purely coincidental. A production by MJ. Audio Theater. Strange Adventure. George Mellaby and his companion, the Dutch hunter Hans de Groot, sat before their tent on the edge of the Kalahari Desert. The geologist Mellaby explained his theory to the hunter de Groot. Now, the Owens River and its tributaries run through a great tract of diamond-bearing territory. This has been going on for ages. All this time, the rivers have been gouging out diamonds along with the other pebbles, and the current has been rushing them downstream. But they must have stayed on the bottom, eh? Oh, many of them, yes. But many were washed downstream until they eventually reached the estuary in South Atlantic. And then all one would have to do is to go to the mouth of the Orange River and just fill his pockets with diamonds, eh? Oh, it's not as easy as that. The sea washed them back somewhere along the coast. Yes, I'm counting on science to help me find the Beach of Diamonds. Day followed weary day as the two white men and their small safari worked their way across the wild, trackless territory. De Groot became filled with an insatiable desire to find the Beach of Diamonds and claim its untold wealth for himself. One morning, Mellaby awoke to find the other white man gone. Gone also were many of his native bearers and most of the supplies. The hunter had deserted him. The scientist followed the Orange River down to the ocean. Then he started trekking up the coast. The whole country was like a part of a dead world. His pack animals died. All his natives deserted him except Mabangi, his faithful head boy. The wind lashed at them. The sand drove at them like millions of tiny arrows. Water ran out, and they could find no more. At last, Melaby and Mabangi climbed a little rise that overlooked Alexander Bay. The men stared out across the bare open beach. The blinding sun came out through a rift in the clouds and shone on the pebbles of the beach. The pebbles glittered. Mabangi, look! Those pebbles, they're diamonds! We've found the beach of diamonds. Yes, Bath. We find beach of diamonds. Now can we rest? All right, Mabengi. Make camp in the lee of that sand dune. Mellaby ran down the beach picking up the shiny pebbles. He thought of De Groot, the greedy hunter who had robbed him, and wondered what had happened to the Dutchman. A bullet kicked up the sand near the feet of the geologist. He dropped to the beach more surprised than frightened. A man came into sight over the top of one of the dunes. My friend Mellaby. <laughs> At last we meet again, Nigvar. You were so very good to lead me to the beach. De Groot, how did you... It was very easy. I backtracked and came upon your trail. I merely followed you. The Dutchman leveled his rifle at the unarmed scientist. It is too bad. Diamond Beach will become your tomb. Mellaby saw a tall figure appear at the top of the dune. A hunting spear flashed through the air. De Groot fell impaled by the barb and rolled down the shifting side of the sand dune dead. The baggy smiled at his master. But he bad man. He had no use for Beach of Diamond. Mellaby took his stones back to Johannesburg. As soon as the Diamond Corporation learned of his discovery, he was given a check for $10 million. 
This is Pat McGeehan saying goodbye from my writer Charles Crowder and inviting you to listen again to another tale of Strange Adventure. There are a couple of very good old-time radio shows out of Canada. One of these is Vanishing Point, a mostly science fiction anthology that ran from 1984 until 1986. The tagline for this show was Vanishing Point, the point between reality and fantasy. In 1986, Vanishing Point produced what I guess you would have to call a mini-series of six programs. Each of these programs featured a story that was suggested by ideas found in Nathaniel Hawthorne's notepad. Apparently stories that he never actually developed. And I really do think they probably stray quite a bit from Nathaniel Hawthorne's original ideas. Collectively, these six episodes are known as Thrice Told Tales. The story seems rather Bradburyan in its conception, with maybe a little Stephen King thrown in for good measure. It's the story of a science fiction writer and his family who have taken what for the father is a working vacation to the beach. The children spend their time idyllically playing with sandcastles on the beach. Well, the girl calls them sandcastles. The boy insists that they are space castles. One evening, the girl is taken up by a spaceship. She comes back, though. But when she comes back, she comes back straight. such a beautiful place for a holiday. Now you have to say knock, knock. Knock, knock. Who is knocking on the door of the space castle? Yuna. Your name can't be Yuna. Yes, it can. It's a game. In the game, my name is Yuna. But your real name is Yuna. You can't do that. 
unstructured chain of events thrown into confusion by some misplaced circumstance. I don't like those cliffs on the way to the point. We have to make it absolute. All right, I guess it could be you now. But what planet are you from? Hey. You're not from Earth. You're supposed to be a space spy. I'm Yuna from Earth. Yuna. Okay, I guess you're Yuna, but Earth? Unsuspected until it's too late. But exerting pressure from beginning... Beginning to end. Nat? Nat. What? Put away your computer bites for a bite to eat. Dinner's almost ready. Go ahead without me. Oh, no. I've got to keyboard a few ideas for my next novel before I forget them. But we're on holiday. You're on holiday. I've got to work. 24 hours a day? I can't help it. I'm a writer. <laughs> Honestly. Sometimes I think you wish the kids and I were software stored on a floppy disk. Anytime you wanted to have a family, you'd just run the program. A person to be writing a tale and to find that it shapes itself against his intentions. Look, Julian, the sandcastle is melting. The space ocean is swallowing the space castle. Donnie, what silly. The characters act otherwise than he thought. Unforeseen events occur and a catastrophe. Hey! You can take the time to eat at least one meal a day with your family. Sophia, if I don't get started on Daddy, my knob, we'll have to Daddy, eat this Daddy. keyboard someday soon. Gladly. Pass the salt and pepper, please. Daddy, Daddy! What? I built a space castle. Space castle? That was the name of my last book. I know it. That's why I built it. That's wonderful, Julie. You'll have to show me my... My name's not Julie. That's a girl's name. I told you, Nat. You've got to watch that. I know you're not a girl. It's just a pet name. My name's Julian Alexander Thorne. Yes, sir. Daddy. Hi, Dollface. Did you have fun with Ju Julian on the beach? Daddy, what's one plus one? Two. Not you, Daddy. He's right, precious. What's one plus two? Daddy this time. Who's ready for a hamburger? Me, me. I love hamburgers. I want relish on Okay, okay kids, up to the nice. table. No, that was great, honey. That's fine. Honey. I Thanks. love it here. I can't tell you how nice it's been. It's to get rain. Why did you marry Daddy, Mommy? Well, we were in love, and we wanted to spend our lives together, so we decided... <laughs> she felt sorry for me. Dad, don't say things like that to the kids. Julian, stop banging that fork. Finish your potato salad, love. I don't like it. Well, then excuse yourself from the table so the rest of us can eat in peace. Mommy, if you never met Daddy and married somebody else, then I would be somebody else. Right, Mommy? <laughs> well, but I did marry Daddy, and you are you. If I was somebody else, would you still love me? <laughs> no. Hey, did you know that your name, Yuna, means together in one? That means that Mommy took all her love, and Daddy took all his love, and we made a little girl. You. But if I was somebody... <laughs>
all right, sweetheart? Where's your sister? You not fell down. Down? Down where? Right here. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, no. The, the spaceship oh, no. landed, and Eunice slumped on the rock, and she fell. Oh. And her head blew up, oh. Mommy. Her head blew up. What's the matter? Where's Eunice? What's happened? Sophia? She, she, she fell. She fell, Matt. She, where? She fell. She fell. Where? Tell me. Here. I'll find her. She's probably all right. Julian said her head. It blew up, Daddy. Wait right here. I'll find her. What? I'm okay. But, but it's getting too dark to see, even with a flashlight. You'll have to get help. Are you my mommy? Yuna! 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 What's happening? Sophia! We found her, Nat! She's all right! She's all right! Where was she? She Oh, thank God! Yuna! You gave us such a... A cloud in the shape of a little girl. Her arms extended toward the pearl of the full moon. Still working? Finishing up. Kids tucked in okay? Yeah. Matt, you're going to have to have a talk with Julian. I already bawled him out for telling fibs. You want me to threaten him? That's not what I mean. He needs his daddy to be his friend. I'm his friend. He knows that. You've got to spend more time with both those kids. (laughs) Real time. Or you can do things with them to, to channel their very active imaginations. Oh, they're growing up so fast. I know, I know, and someday I'll be sore. Well, you will. I know, I know you're right. I will. That was quite a story Julian made up about seeing a UFO and little green man and his sister falling off the cliff. Oh, some story. <laughs> he said it all so seriously. Well, where does he get it from? I swear you two are peas in a pod. You've got to give both those kids more of your time, Matt. You're right. You're right. I will. Oh, oh, I am exhausted. Are you coming to bed now? I was thinking of proofing these printouts. Of course. This is a holiday. Turn out the lights. And if the kids get up, you deal with it. Good night. Good night, love. A person to be in possession of something as perfect as mortal man has a right to expect. Young lady, what are you doing up? I don't sleep. You don't? It's awfully late. What's ten plus ten? You still playing that game? Twenty. Hmm, you're sure getting smart. Come on up and sit on Daddy's knee for a little bit. What's twenty plus twenty? Twenty plus twenty? Well, let's see now. Seven times seven. (laughs) Forty-nine. How did you know that? Seven times eight is fifty-six. Seven times nine is sixty-three. Seven times ten is seven. Okay, you little monkey. Daddy's got his calculator this time. What's two hundred fifty-three times one hundred seventy-six? Forty-four thousand five hundred and twenty-eight. I 
don't believe it. Three thousand billion 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 billion. That's a three followed by sixty-six zeros. Daddy. Consisting of father, mother, and two children. The little girl rambles away. They call for her. She comes back. Not. Huh? What? What's the matter now? You spent the night out here on the picnic table. Oh, yeah, I guess I did. Honestly, I'm making pancakes, fresh coffee, and juice. The kids should be starved after last night's escapade. Oh, oh, I had the weirdest dream about Yuna.、Hmm? I guess it was a dream. She was stunning. <laughs> Morning, precious. Mummy, go and sit beside your daddy, and I'll find out why your brother is taking forever in the bathroom this morning. That's a pretty fat book you've got there. I'm reading it. The complete works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> I thought Babar was your favorite. Who's Babar? You know, the king of the elephants. Now look, I don't mind if you want to play with the books as long as you don't tear out any of the pages, okay? Julian, she's not my sister. I don't care. I hate her.、Julian. I hate her. Julian, she's not my sister. I hate her. Matt, will you speak to your? I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. What? What seems to be your problem this morning, young man? I hate you too. I hate all of you. I hate her. I hate her. Julian, come back here this minute. Julian, Matt, I think you had better sort. Right. I'll go and have a good long talk. Enjoy your breakfast. Consisting of a father,、Julian! mother, and two children. Julian! Julian! The little girl rambles away. Don't move, son. They call for her. Stay right there. She comes back. I'm coming down. Don't move. But they begin to notice something odd. They notice it more. Son, look, Daddy. There. What? Right there. Yuna. Oh. oh my God! Until one day they know it was not their own child who came back, but a strange, strange, strange. Oh, Yuna! Yuna! Nobody knows for sure where we go when we die. You see, there's an energy in the universe that goes on and on for thousands of millions of years. Maybe when we die, we become part of that. 
Maybe that's our soul. But we don't come back. No, we don't come back. But you not the other you know. She. Is she a space spy, Daddy? Well, uh, I think she might be a gift from space. You know what I mean? Like a Christmas present? Yeah. Yeah, very much like a Christmas present. Maybe the aliens knew that we would be sad when Una died. So they somehow made us another little... Do I have to be nice to her? Why not if she's nice to you? She's not my sister. My sister's dead. That doesn't mean you can't be nice to her, right? So we're not going to tell anybody about where we covered her up? It's a secret? We'll probably have to tell a lot of people. The police? Yeah, the police too, I would imagine. Will they lock me up in jail? <laughs> no, of course not. But they might not believe me about the station, and then the... Hey, listen to me. I believe you. And that's what really counts. Understand? Okay. Daddy, do you think I should be a writer when I grow up? You can be anything you want to be. But what's most important is for you to be June Alexander Ford. That's me already. All right. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I'm getting too tired to walk anymore. And I'll carry you piggyback. Oh, I bet your mother's starting to wonder what's happened to us. Is he okay? Yeah, he's fine. We had a long walk and a big talk on the beach. Oh, good. Good. Let me help you get him into his bed. Poor little tyke. Just hold the door. Okay. Where's Una? In front of the fireplace, playing with her dolls. I'm worried about her nap. She hasn't eaten. She'll be all right. What you say adds to nature is an art that nature makes. Precious. Where did she pick that up? You see, sweet maid, we marry a gentler scion to the wildest stock and make conceive a bark of baser kind. By bud of nobler race, this is an art which does mend nature, change it rather, but the art itself is nature. The winter's tale. From the shepherd's cottage scene. Matt, Matt, who is she? Mommy, Daddy, do you love me? Will you take care of me? Strange Child, 
an original radio drama based on an idea from the notebooks of Nathaniel Hawthorne and adapted by Charles Tidler. Marilyn Gann was heard as Sophia, Doug Abrahams as Matt, Laura Harris as Una, and Alessandro Giuliani was Julian. The voice of the alien was that of Joanna Schellenberg. Original music for this episode was composed by Don Druick. for Thrice Told Tales was by George Ryan and was performed by Oliver Gannon, Ian Hampton, and Tom Coldclaw. Production secretary for all six episodes was Loretta Joyce and the production assistant was Dagmar Kafanka. Operations for Strange Child were by Gene Loverock and sound effects by Joe De Silva. The script editor for Vanishing Point is Sandra Rabinovich. Strange Child was produced and directed in Vancouver by John Giuliani. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Lynn. The Book of Stories for the Storyteller by Fanny Coe. A Legend of the North Wind. Mary Catherine Judd. North Wind likes a bit of fun as dearly as a boy does, and it is with boys he likes best to play. One day, North Wind saw a brave little fellow eating his lunch under a tree. Just as he went to bite his bread, North Wind blew it out of his hand and swept away everything else hit that he had brought for his lunch. "'You hateful North Wind!' cried the little fellow. "'Give me back my supper! I'm so hungry!' Now North Wind, like all brave beings, is noble, and so he tried to make up for the mischief he had done. "'Here!' Take this tablecloth, said North Wind, and in whatever house you stay, spread it on the table. Then wish, and you shall have everything you wish for to eat. Thank you, said the boy, and he took the tablecloth and ran as fast as he could to the first house, which proved to be an inn. I have enough to pay for lodging, so I'll stay all night, he said to himself. Bring me a table, he ordered the innkeeper as he went to his room. Ha, ha, laughed the innkeeper. You mean bring me a supper. No, I don't. I want only a table and that right quick. I'm hungry. The innkeeper brought the table, but after the door was shut, he watched through the keyhole to see what would happen. Beans, bread, and bacon, ordered the boy as he spread out his tablecloth. On came beans, bread, and bacon through the open window, whirled in by north wind. Smoking hot they all were, too, for the dishes were tightly covered. After supper was over, the boy fell sound asleep. North wind did not waken him as the innkeeper took the table and the tablecloth and carried them downstairs. Next morning the boy was hungry again, but there was no tablecloth, and so no breakfast. You are a cheat, North Wind. You have taken back your tablecloth. No, said North Wind. That is not the sort of thing I do. But the boy did not get his tablecloth. After a time, North Wind met him again out under the trees. 
This time I will give you a sheep, he said. Each time that you rub his wool, out will drop a gold piece. Take care of him. The boy ran back and found the sheep at the door of the stable behind the inn. He caught the sheep by a strap which was round its neck and led it slowly up the stairs of the inn to the room from which the tablecloth had disappeared the night before. As the boy was hungry for his breakfast, he obeyed North Wind's command and patted the sheep upon its back. A gold piece fell out of its fleece upon the floor. Good old North Wind, said the boy. Here's my breakfast and some hay for my sheep. Come breakfast, come hay. And through the open window came first a bundle of hay, then a fine breakfast for the hungry boy. After breakfast, the boy paid for a week's lodging with the gold piece. He slept soundly that night with his sheep for a pillow, and the next night also. But the third morning, when the boy awoke, his head lay upon the floor, and the sheep was gone. Perhaps too many gold pieces had been seen in the boy's hand, for he had patted his sheep very often. He blamed North Wind again. You have taken back your sheep. I don't like you. You are as cold-hearted as you can be. But North Wind said nothing. He put a queer stick into a bag and gave it to the boy and told him to go back and lock his door as tightly as before. Talk to the bag, he said, and guard it carefully as if there were a jewel in it. That night, the boy was wakened out of his soundest sleep by screams for help in his room. There was the innkeeper running about, and that queer stick was pounding him, first on the head, then on the feet, then on his back, then in his face. Help! Help! he cried. Give me back my sheep, said the boy. Get it! It is hidden in the barn, said the innkeeper. The boy went out and found his sheep in the barn and drove it away as fast as he could. But he forgot about the innkeeper, and maybe that stick is pounding him to this day. Recording by Pamela Lynn. Yeah, yeah, you got it. This is a break. We'll be back real soon. Whitehall 1212 was certainly not the first radio program to dramatize cases from Scotland Yard's Black Museum. The first one was actually The Secrets of Scotland Yard, which began in 1950 and was produced by Harry Allen Towers for his Towers Syndication Company. The second program was also produced by Harry Allen Towers for his Towers Syndication Company and is probably the best known of them all, the one with Orson Welles, Secrets of the Black Museum. So White House 1212 was actually the third, produced by NBC, what made Whitehall 1212 stand out from the other in its presentation of actual cases from Scotland Yard is the actual superintendent of the Black Museum, Chief Superintendent John Davidson. Oh, he didn't sound as dramatic as Orson Welles or 
Clive Brooks, who was the narrator for Secrets of Scotland Yard, but he didn't have to fake it. He didn't have to pretend that he knew what he was talking about as he read his script. He was a veteran of the horse. They had a researcher for the series, a man named Percy Hopkins. He was the chief crime reporter for the Daily Express when many of the cases that they would dramatize were first reported. Sometimes he was actually the newspaper man who had initially reported on some of the crimes. The producer for this show was Wallace Cooper, a legend in American radio, creator and producer for a year or two of Lights Out and later Quiet Please. In this show, he just tried to stick to the facts. That didn't mean that there was any shortage of blood and guts. But the blood and guts are only alluded to here. So anyway, here from White House 1212, originally aired on December the 23rd of 1952, is the Heathrow Affair. Whitehall 1212, For the first time, Scotland Yard opens its secret files to bring you the authentic, true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These accurate records drawn from the actual files of Scotland Yard, they're true in every respect except for the names of the participants, which for obvious reasons have been changed. Research on this exclusive series has been done by Percy Hoskins, chief crime porter of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Some of the participants, Donald Rhodes, chief security officer of Heathrow Airport and the former Scotland Yard man. It was a considerable responsibility. Detective Sergeant Vivian Morris of Scotland Yard. I am a suburban housewife. Chief Inspector Robert Sheehan of Scotland Yard's flying squad. Step into the Black Museum here with me. I should like to show you something. John? Oh, is that you, Shane? Yes, I brought some friends to see you. Yeah, I'll be with you at once. Good afternoon. This is Chief Superintendent John Davidson, curator of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. How do you do? Well, I expect you've come about the relics of the Heathrow affair. Right. Oh, on the table there behind you. All we have. Oh, good. Yes, this one I recognize. Iron bar used by criminals in Heathrow Fair. <laughs> some of my hair still sticking to it. Yes, yeah, some of your blood too, Bob. Makes my head ache yet. Yeah. This is a briefcase carried by the GOC. And here, <coughs> alterable license plate used by the GOC gang. You see, it reads GMU 436. Press the lever, please, John. And hey, presto. It reads CGC 829. Very neat, isn't it? You, of course, don't have the most important souvenir at all here, John. What's that? The half-million-pound sterling. I think that I should tell you a little about our flying squad. It consists of a large number of motor cars, all wireless equipped, all very fast, and all kept constantly in superb condition. The flying squad is on duty 24 hours a day. A highly mobile force, available on extremely short notice at any point in the entire London area. The members of the flying squad are hand-picked, and they're very unusual men. These three are typical. This is Detective Sergeant Norby Clark of the flying squad. Yes, sir. I was one of Lord Lewis' commanders. I was at Norby. Oh, yes, and at Gear. Former leading petty officer.
a dusty miller on HMS Phoebe. I'm 29 years old. I'm 62 and I weigh 14 stone eight. I was both away champion of my ship, the light cruiser Phoebe. Detective Sergeant Ray Lawton, the Canadian. I, I'm about the, uh, the only policeman you ever heard of who was once a lion tamer in a circus. Like all policemen in Britain, we seldom carry arms, although I assure you we're quite able to use them effectively should the occasion demand them. British policemen rely on the weapons provided by nature, augmented occasionally, of course, by the issue of stout truncheons or rubber cautions, which I understand the Americans call black jacks, and which are wondrously effective. Our job, you see, is not to shoot criminals, but to bring them to justice, or if possible, to prevent their depredations. We find our methods rather effective. Well, in June 1948, great new London airport, London had long since outgrown the famous old Croydon Airdrome, was operating at capacity, although it was still far from completion. My old friend Donald Rhodes, a veteran Scotland Yard man who was chief security officer at Heathrow, came to call on me at the yard. Can't stay away from the old home place, can you, Donald, I asked. I always know where to come for help, Bob. What's the matter? You know the GOC? General officer commanding what? Ancient and honorable brigade of robbers. Oh, Moriarty? Moriarty, Townsend, Inge, Hughes, West, Simmons. Brown, Bennett, dozens of names. Yes, I know him. Or know him, I should say. Big operator. Biggest. Well, his recce people have been looking us over. What's he after? A nice new airplane for himself? Gold. At Heathrow? We transship thousands of pounds in gold, you know. International affairs. Planes fly in dripping with the stuff. Leave it overnight with us and... Leave it lying about? We keep it as short a time as possible in our bonded warehouse under guard. Strongest safes in the country. Guarded, of course. <laughs> Try and get past them. Much gold? Plane load at a time. How's he going to do it? Tanks or something at dawn? Oh, he'll be much more clever than that. He always has been. That's why he isn't sewing mailbags at Dartmoor today. How'd you get on to all this? I brought the chap along, one of my mechanics. Like to talk to him? Naturally. Come in, will you, Karn? Yes, sir. This is former Lieutenant John Karn of the Royal Tank Regiment, Bob. Good afternoon, sir. Sit down, Mr. Karn. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, tell Chief Inspector Sheehan about it, will you please, Karn? Well, sir, I've been with Mr. Rhodes for quite some time. The day before yesterday, I received a telephone call from an acquaintance of mine named Edward Mybridge. Where did you know this Mybridge before? We were in prison together, sir. Prison? Well, Mr. Hitler's off flag, 18, in the war. Oh, German prison camp. Yes, sir. I had seen him since we were demobbed and we had a drink together. Oh, let's not waste any time, please, Karen. Oh, no, sir. Well, he telephoned me again yesterday, sir, and... You had another drink? Right, sir. He asked me how I'd like to make a lot of money and whiskey, and I said, fine. I asked how... He said, passing on some information about Heathrow, how it was run from the guards and all that. What sort of looking chap was he? Red hair, squint eye, limps on right leg. Sound familiar to you, Bob? Not as what you call him, Colonel. Edward Mybridge, sir? His name's Ginger Johnson in our books. Unmistakable. He's not a nice fellow at all, Colonel. I found that out, sir. Oh? He warned me to say nothing to anyone about our conversation or he'd have to take steps. I remembered what he did to a German prison guard the day we were released, sir. What? Cut his head off with a mess knife. A very hard character indeed, this Edward Mybridge. Here's Ginger Johnson, an old Borstal boy. He had served honorably in the army, but had returned to his old ways immediately upon demobilization. 
He was well known to us as one of the GOC's most useful lieutenants. This GOC, a man of great mental attainments, we knew for the leader of one of the most desperate gangs of lawbreakers in all our experience. A genuine storybook mastermind. He had for many years operated like a real general officer commanding, maintaining a small staff of rough and ready assistants like Mybridge, and recruiting his actual operatives, his army, for specific jobs as he needed them. Scott and Jard had never been able to lay a finger on him, although he was quite well known to us under a variety of names and ostensible professions. It was obvious that this would be no small undertaking. He needed to be watched, and thoroughly, and beginning at once. I telegraphed a chief inspector I remembered in a Scottish town not far from Perth, and he reported to me at Scotland Yard the next day. I finished my briefing on what he had to do for us. Oh, I'll recognize him all right, sir. You have a lot of pictures of him. I wish we had him. I'm not to arrest him, sir. You'll not have a chance. He's a most law-abiding man. Now, he's never seen you in his life, and you understand, I don't want him to see you. Okay, sir. I'll want to know everywhere he goes, everyone he talks to. Aye, sir. Don't telephone in. Stay with him till you see him home in the evening. Then come in and report. Okay, sir. And good luck. You'll need it. I'm a very ordinary-looking man, sir. He'll never see me. Chief Inspector Ross was back in my office in two hours. Uh, <clears throat> well? He, uh, I was standing on the corner, sir, waiting for the bus with him. And just as it stopped, he turned to me and said... It's all right, Chief Inspector Andrew Ross. You can go back to Perthshire. I'm just going to my bank this time. A detective constable we imported from Leeds who looked like a clergyman was addressed pityingly by name by the GOC who trod on our man's toes. The language he employed was quite unclerical. The law, of course, does not permit tapping a suspected man's telephone, so we were forced to continue to try to trail him to find out precisely what he was doing. But infallibly, he recognized our people. Rhodes kept hounding us. He couldn't organize his plan to defend the airport until he knew more of the GOC's probable intentions, and the man outwitted us at every turn. There came a morning ten days or so later when I saw Vivian Morris, one of our women detective sergeants, pass my open door. Oh, uh, Sergeant, I called. Good morning, sir. Come in here a moment, will you? Uh, yes, sir. Vivian. Yes, sir. You're a very pretty girl. Why, thank you, sir. Have you ever followed a man? <laughs> Report of Detective Sergeant Vivian C. Morris to Chief Inspector Sheehan at Scotland Yard. I don't think he recognized me, sir. You look like a young suburban mother, Vivian. I am. Got two girls. I shall send them each a hair ribbon. What happened? Oh, I got on his bus one street after him. There was no seat. I spotted him at once. He was staring about the bus, looking for one of us. And we were not there. All at once, he leaped to his feet and offered me his seat. The very mirror of politeness. Yes. Then he rushed to the door, leered at a perfectly innocent man in a Homburg hat, and leapt off the bus almost before it had stopped. I couldn't follow, of course. Naturally. But tomorrow is another day. Report of Detective Sergeant Morris the second day. Yes, sir. He stayed on the bus this time. I had my knitting with me. I'm doing a pair of tartan stockings for Sheila for her birthday. He didn't pay the slightest attention to me. He got off at Waterloo Station with most of the others on the bus, including myself. He went into a small tobacconist shop. Here's the address, sir. Thank you. He was wearing a dark blue coat, bowler hat, and carried a small briefcase. I went into a Lyons Corner house. You know the one, sir, where I could watch the door of the tobacconist. I had three buns and three cups of coffee before he came out again. This time, wearing a brown tweed suit and hat and without the briefcase. He looked about him sharply and hailed a taxi cab and they drove off. The number of the taxi cab was EBC 414. Thank you, Sergeant. Most well done. Would you just shove me the telephone, please? Thank you. There's an urgent telephone call waiting for you, sir. 
Who is it? Inspector Green of traffic, sir. What does he want? He said it's quite important, sir. All right, put him on. Yes, Green? Uh, Green here, Shane. See, I hear you're interested in Ginger Johnson. What about him? He's dead. I refuse to burst into tears. He was apparently struck by a motor car. Where? On the Great West Road near the New Heathrow Airport. Oh, was he killed instantly? Well, he lived only a few minutes after we picked him up. Well, he's out of our hair. Oh, uh, did he say anything? Uh, uh, just a sec. What must he say? He said, tell her. Oh, say, perhaps you'd know what he was talking about. What did he say? He said, tell Karen not to drink the tea. It's poisoned. <laughs> Sounds quite macromish, doesn't it? <laughs> You're sure he said, tell Karen? Did he say Karen? Yes, Quite all right, old boy. I do. Oh, uh, thank you very much. I hung up on him. Is there anything I can do to help, sir? Yes, go out and get someone started on tracing that taxi cab at once, please. Here, take the paper with a number on it. Right, sir. Will you put me through to Heathrow Airport at once, Chief Security Officer? Oh, good, you're here, Bob. Oh, Donald, I was just telephoning you. Never mind, officer, he's just come in. Look, Don, what about Colonel the T? Eh? Johnson just got killed. His dying words were to tell your man, Colonel, not to drink the tea because it's poisoned. Tea? What's it mean? I think he was off his rocker. Thought he was still in the German print camp. Could be. What I came over for, I have a signal from the foreign office. The Americans are sending us some money soon. What? Mere 388,000 pounds in gold. When? Ten days from today. Wonder if that's what the GOC is getting his sights on. A great many people knew that we were expecting a large amount of gold from America. He has a long nose. That long, do you suppose? You had a great deal of experience with him while you were here at the yard. I wonder. Oh, excuse me, sir. Uh, come in, Vivian. You know Sergeant Morris, don't you, Donald? Indeed I do. How are those, Vivian? They're fine, sir. Excuse me, sir. Uh, they're checking the taxi driver, sir. They'll telephone you. Good. You can go home now, if you like. You want to try again tomorrow? Of course. Good girl. Good night. Good night, sir. Good night, Mr. Rowe. Good night. What's... what's she doing? She's caught up with the GOC. Find out anything good? Shortly. Look, we'll have to get going on this thing at once. If it is the, ship, the new shipment he's after. I know it. There's not much we can do until we have an idea how we intend to try. Pity Ginger Johnson died. He might have told us instead of babbling about poison tea in German prison... She in here? Shattinger here, sir. In the 999 room. Yes, Shattinger. And all the good luck on tracing that taxi cab, sir. Found the driver had just come into the company garage. Had his trip booked with him. Good. The uh, trip at 10.23 this morning was from Waterloo Station to a shop in Sowell. A chemist shop. A chemist shop? Yeah. The taxi driver said he saw his fare enter the shop. George Shill, chemist, he said it. George Shill, I know that name. What George, about George Shill, Shill has been involved in a number of narcotics cases. Yes, I know. Thank you very much. What about George Shill? That's who the GOC was visiting this morning. Is he in the narcotics thing, too? We shall find out, old boy. I wonder where he went from there. Probably to bump off Jim Johnson. Bump him off? Now tell me why he should do that. Well, good old Ginger might have been looking on the wine when it was red. Bible, old chap. Or the whiskey when it is amber. And blabbered about his talk with your man, Kern. The GOC wouldn't like that, would he? He wouldn't know whether Kern had talked to you. And he might have decided to prevent any more talk by Ginger to the wrong bloke. Ah, oh, a little fantastic. But plausible. Where'd they find Ginger? Uncomfortably close to your precious airport on the Great West Road. Ah. Yes. Only through to Superintendent Trevelyan. Is that you, Trevelyan? She in here. Look, sir, I'd like to have a detail of men at once on an investigating job. 
Yes, sir, most important. I'd like to have a check made at once of all houses along Great West Road near the new Heath Airport. I'll go ask them if you like. Eh? Oh, thanks, Donald. Mr. Rhodes, the chief security officer at the airport, will help them out. I'm looking for a house that has uh, a recent lodger. Check the houses that overlook the airport first. Please, for a lodger that did not return this evening. Here's the description. Tall, red-haired, has a squint eye and a gimpy right leg. Got it, sir? Thank you. Yes, sir, I'll get a search warrant and come at once when they find him. Thank you very much. They can telephone me at home if they find the place out of hours. Right. A few minutes after midnight, I was awakened by a telephone call from one of the men of Superintendent Rebellion's squad. After some difficulty in obtaining a search warrant at that time night, I proceeded to the house in which he had telephoned. The house was almost directly across the road from the main gate of the airport. Donald Rhodes, who was awaiting my arrival, accompanied me upstairs to the former lodger's room, which provided an excellent view of the airport from its single window. The householder turned on the light and left us. The room was quite neat. There's, uh, there's a chair by the window. Yes. Turned towards the window. Cushions rumpled quite a bit. Somebody's been sitting on it a lot. Here's an officer's musette bag in the closet. Have a look. That's his, all right. See? E. Mybridge, Lieutenant, King's Royal Rifle Corps. Good regiment. He's a good soldier, I expect. Here's a drawer on the table. Ah! What? E. Leith, Wetzler. Good pair of glasses, these German officers. 10x30. He was spying. That's this. What's this? Royal Corps Signal Field Message Pad. Or his reports to the GOC, eh? <laughs> Quite regimental. Been using it, too. Good. What? Writing on the sheet he just tore out left an impression on the second sheet. Let's see. Hold up the lamp there, Donald. Mm -hmm. No, hold it so the light comes across the page from the edge so it casts a shadow on the ridges of the writing here. Hmm? Read it. Hold the lamp still. See to guards at... at what's this word? Look, looks like midnight. What guards will you see to midnight? Makes no sense. Let me look again. No, that isn't see. Here. No, looks like... I know what it is. What? T. T. T to guards at midnight. I don't... What was it Ginger said to tell Curran? Don't drink the tea. It's poisoned. It was the custom at that time for a local tea shop to send a man with a tricycle around the airport every night with a huge container of hot tea. It was a familiar sight to everyone on the field, and the sound of his funny little French taxi horn was the signal for everyone to have his tuppence ready for his tin cup of the stuff. The GOC's plan was obvious. If that tea were poisoned, then if they all drank it, and if half a million pounds in gold lay unguarded with a dead man at the gate, a, a most diabolical scheme. Nevertheless, a feasible one, by the GOC's reckoning. But he had overlooked some factors in his reckoning. One factor he'd overlooked was a rough, tough man's aversion to poisoning a wartime friend. The other was the flying squad. I sent men the following morning to all parts of London on a search for certain men whom we knew to have worked for the GOC before. A number of them were in prison. But we discovered that 11 of them had been mysteriously disappeared. They, we reasoned, had been mobilized by the GOC for final briefing and held in readiness for the attack. The GOC himself had left for parts unknown. He reappeared only once, and Vivian Morris reported that he had made a most curious purchase. Six pairs of nylon skins, the largest sizes available. We knew something of the GOC's plans. This was our final briefing in the Flying Squad's garage. Repeat your instructions, Nobby Clark. I'm glad to see, Laurie, that picks up all the guards and takes them to the shelter. 
I drop off a flight squad man for everyone I pick up. Flight squad men are to be dressed in BOAC uniforms like those the guards wear. He will be armed with a truncheon and a rubber cough. At the shelter, I'm to tell the guards I pick up what's going on. Right. Detective Sergeant Norton, what do you do, lion tamer? I'm in charge of the flight squad men that will be planted in the bonded warehouse where the money is. And you, Justin Miller? I'd like to be with lion tamer. What's your job? Oh, I'm in general charge of the cars. So I was well away. Can't we save one of them for you, Dusty? Say to it, Martin. All right, Dusty. Now remember, not a man must touch the people. Oh, no chance. Not that poison hurts any of you, but I, I shall need it for evidence. Well, couldn't we offer them a drink, sir? Donald? Look, it's my airport and it's my responsibility. What do you do? I just sit in that ugly little shelter by the telephone, and when they're all inside, I'm to lift the receiver. Good. And a sergeant from the 999 room? Constable Lawyer. I'll watch the special switchboard for it to light up when Mr. Rose lifts the receiver. And then? Then at once I'm to shout into my wireless microphone one word. Well? Go. Where's Dusty Miller? Oh. Then I go a yoinks and the cars with the rest of us converge on every entrance to the airport. Render such assistance as might be necessary. None will be necessary, Dusty. And Lawton, when do you start operations? Not when they start to open the safe, sir. Then what? Then we smite them and hypnotize them. Carry them all off to the public. To the what? Oh, sorry, sir, that's Canadian. Uh, to the bowels of the best time. And when you're down, boys, Heathrow will supply beer for A bottle of pigs! <laughs> beer and bandages, boys. The day came. The airplane from America arrived with the gold. It was transferred under heavy guard to the bonded warehouse. Donald Rhodes supervised that himself. I joined the guard at the gatehouse of the airport about 11 that evening. It was very quiet. That'll be Clark taking our men around and picking up the regular guards. Very lonely and very quiet. Maybe they'll not come, I thought. I borrowed a cigarette from the gate guard, but I crushed it out. They mustn't know there's anybody here besides you, I told him. That's right, sir. Squidge down on the floor. I waited. That was Nobby taking the regular guards to the shed. Quarry. Who's that? I'd get it, sir. Yes? Clark here. Tell Mr. Sheehan I've picked up all the guards and our people are waiting. Yes, it was... I heard him. Just in time, sir. Here comes the chief. The man with the tricycle came up and stopped. Hello, Herbert. Hello, James. Sorry to be late. I've come. Hey, got your tin cup? Here. Some guard or somebody stopped me down the road a bit and demanded what I was doing. Made me open up the tea and let him look at it. Got all cold, I'm afraid, him staring at it. All right, Thomas, please. Right. Go on in. The guard brought in the tea, which we set on the floor to keep as evidence. The driver came back with the empty container and went on about his business. The guard and I crouched on the floor of the little hut, waiting. Only the sound of a belated airplane or two broke the silence. It was half an hour later when we heard the sound of a lorry. I called under the table. The guard lay back in his chair, motionless. The lorry stopped at the gate and a man got out. He looked in our window. Here's one of them now. I stood up cautiously. The lorry moved straight to the bonded warehouse and stopped. We heard them at the door. We kept quiet in the dim light. The door opened. I watched through a crack in the sheltered door. My hand on the telephone to the 999 room. We sat in our cars, motors running, hidden at the road junctions all around the airport. My eyes began to hurt, watching that switchboard. I said to the guards in the shed, now mind you, not a sound. I could see the shadowy figures clustering about the door to the bonded warehouse. A man whispered in my ear, 
What have they got on their heads? They look like ratty elephants. They had women's stockings on for masks. They sure looked weird with their legs hanging down over their faces. I hope the GOC's with them, I thought. The last one entered. I picked up the receiver. There it is. Go, you son. Go. Come on, the flame squad. They're at the safe. I saw a man running towards me. He tore the stocking from his head and I leaped out the door at him. Stop! Stop, I yell! Stop! I'm Inspector Shield! When I came to an hour later, I discovered the grandfather of all bumps on my head from the loaded cosh the man had caressed me with. My men of the flying squad stood about, many of them bandaged to the eyes, but all happy quaffing beer. We taught up the score. Eleven prisoners, including the one who had struck me and whom the gate guard had taken care of. Two broken arms, one smashed nose, and a turned ankle. A pile of heavy cautious and short iron bars the robbers had carried. And the 388,000 pounds still untouched. The prisoners bore a large variety of contusions, black eyes, and broken heads. I, uh, I had a headache for a week. We never did catch the GOC, but we sent 11 of his men to prison, having caught them red-handed. And to this day, no one has ever dreamed of robbing Heathrow again. If they do so, may I have a chance at them, too? another true story from the files of Scotland Yard. Only the names were, for obvious reasons, changed. Research for Whitehall 1212 is done by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Okay, that's it. That's another Night Transmissions in the can. Well, almost in the can. Oh, and before I go, I'm going to give you my email address in hopes that somebody will write me. If it's so disposed, I'm available at nighttransmissions at gmail.com. You can also drop by the website. There's a contact button there. Oh, the website, as you might expect, is www.nighttransmissions. One word. Always just one word whenever you're dealing with anything on the Internet and night transmissions. www.nighttransmissions.com There, I said it. See ya. If you're wondering what you're listening to in the background there, it's a recording from 1942 of the Dartmouth University Orchestras. How long has this been going on? 
Thank you. 